Father, we come to you today with hearts of gratitude. We want to pause for a moment just to say thank you. Thank you for your lavish, everlasting love you have for us. Thank you that you first loved us. Father, what a beautiful gift. God, we ask that you would forgive us of our sins, Lord, when we fail and seek other things and idols and we get caught up in the busyness of, of life. God, I pray that you would draw us back to you, Jesus. Help us in our weakness and make us strong. Help us to come back to our first love. For our hearts to burn for you. To turn our affections towards you. For you to truly be the king of our hearts. For your peace to rule and reign in our hearts. Help us to seek you and only you, our first love. Help us to chase after you, to long to be in your presence, to walk with you, to commune with you. Holy Spirit, help us to long for you as the deer pants for the water. Help our soul to thirst for you and draw from the well of living water. Help us to love you with our whole heart. We love you, Jesus, and I pray, God, that you would just prepare and posture our hearts for the message this morning, for it to pierce our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Good morning and welcome to Fellowship Bible Church this morning. Let's have the kids be dismissed to their time of worship upstairs. Um, that's nursery age through the fifth grade. If they're not um, already up there and uh, if they're checked in, you can just send them. They'll meet their teachers out in the lobby and uh, you can pick them up upstairs at the end of the service. Um, but thank you all for being here to worship the risen King Jesus, to open his word, to worship and pray together. It's an important practice that we have as Christians where we live by the truth every day. But then occasionally, once a week, we gather with other brothers and sisters who believe the same things, who have, been, um, who have had our lives transformed and purchased by the same blood and are gathered here together to mutually encourage, to worship, to learn and to grow so that we can be sent out in, in Christ's name and by his spirit into the world around us. Um, I hope you, you have a practice of taking one of these every week and, and checking out. There's always two or three things on there but usually there's more going on in the life of the church, and I hope um, you have uh, scanned this QR code and signed up for our weekly newsletter that comes um, digitally through, through email, and you'll get more information that way. But let me go through a few things going on in the life of the church over the next few weeks that we really want to highlight. Um, number one, this, uh, this weekend... Our youth are going to be away. 16 students and three leaders are going to Ridgehaven Camp, and they're going to uh, be encouraged and challenged and have a time of way um, in a retreat. So please be praying for our students and our leaders that are going on that trip for God to move and for God to challenge um, students and adults both 
um, as they seek to grow in following Jesus. Um, then this Saturday, we'll have a men's breakfast, and those are always fun. Those are always great. You can sign up for that on the church app and, and see the information about that, but we do have a special guest coming with up, coming um, this Saturday. Usually what we do, guys, if you haven't been before, you'll hear a testimony from a man in our church that will share, you know, what God has done in their life. And it will be a similar format, maybe a little bit bigger. We'll have some worship this Saturday as well. But our guest speaker for this Saturday is Tim Challies, who, if you don't know, if you haven't heard that name, he's a well-known author and speaker and blogger. And he's also a part of our extended church family because his mother and two of his siblings are members here, and he's coming into town for the weekend and um, sharing with us at our breakfast on Saturday. So, men, if you haven't been before or if you have, it's going to be a great breakfast to just come and be encouraged by fellowship and encouraged um, from the Word of God and what God is doing in the lives of others. For women's ministry, we have an event the following weekend on the 23rd and the 24th. It's Friday night and part of the day on Saturday. That's also something you can sign up for on the church app. Some of those spots are free. This is a national broadcast going out that is being hosted by a couple other churches in our community and churches around the world. And it will be Bible teaching, it will be encouragement and worship, and so we would love for you to be there and we'd love for you to sign up. Um, if, if you're not one of the first 30 to sign up, we will have to pay for those slots. And so um, it's $15 if you're not one of the first 30, if you're one of the first 30, it's free. For college students, no matter where you sign up in the process, it's free. So check out the Church Center app for that. Um, as well. Next week, we're going to have a baptism service, and um, it's funny. I talk to, to people all the time about this, of um, different stages of life, different stages of their Christian walk, and I'll simply say it like this. Everyone needs to be baptized, and if you were not baptized as a child, and you're an adult believer, and you're considering, well, is it right? I'm, I'm going to tell you. If you know and understand the gospel and have committed to follow Jesus, it's right. Let's, let's do it. Let's be baptized. And so we've had a couple people already come forward ready to be baptized um, next Sunday. We'd love to add to that. So please let me know as soon as possible. Just come and talk to me or find one of the other staff. They'll get in touch with me, and we'll talk through the process of, of baptizing, um, and that will be next week. Um, additionally, two things going on in our missions ministry. We do have a group that's, again, going to um, Romania and Ukraine this summer, and if you are interested in joining them, Tom Perry is leading a meeting behind this room at the end of the service today. So just make your way back there. He's got some information sheets if you're interested. There's a sign-up sheet. Um, and if you want to participate but can't make it today, talk to Tom about it. And he'll have another meeting, a makeup meeting for those that can't attend. Um, but if you have any interest in that in July, um, talk to Tom, whether you can make it to the meeting today or not. And then finally, our missions conference is coming up uh, just over a month, the weekend of March 16th and 17th. We want you to save those dates for Saturday morning, March 16th, where we will be sharing about God's, God's blessing and God's surprising action and movement in our church's mission program over a long history. And so we're, we're sharing some stories that probably most of you haven't heard, most of us haven't heard, of just God's faithfulness in so many areas of ministry over a long term. And we're anticipating 
what he's, what he's going to be doing in the next generation. And so uh, both Saturday morning and Sunday, March 16th and 17th. But first, as we're preparing for that over the next month, we're going to be uh, occasionally showing you some videos of some of our missionaries. So this is a video of one of our Romanian uh, church partners, the one that, that we, you probably know the, the least, Mihai Kolar and his family. And uh, we have a total of three Romanian church partners that we sponsor but he's going to tell you a little bit about themselves and what God is doing in them. Hello, Fellowship Bible Church. Uh, we are family, Kolar, Kolar family. I am Mihai. She is my beautiful wife, Ligia. Hello. Uh, daughter, Timea. And son, Patrick. I am a pastor uh, from uh, 96. I finished the school in uh, Bucharest Seminar. Uh, Baptist Seminar in Bucharest and uh, I work like a pastor, in special uh, pastor for uh, little church in villages. I planted, I opened three churches, new churches, and uh, helped to grow up another. And uh, this time I work with uh, Daniel Grian in uh, Nashtera, I work with him, and uh, my wife worked with uh, women and uh, Timea works with uh, children and Patrick is uh, with uh, sound and with uh, technical uh, stuff. Uh, we want to thank you for your support in uh, financial support and for uh, prayers for us. Renashtar Church is a young church. We are the oldest in the church and uh, we have a need to pray for uh, people, for uh, which has experience with God, with uh, materials, with uh, saturate program. We bring uh, uh, us uh, six church more, and uh, together we spend uh, 6,000 uh, packets. Just uh, Renat Steria spend uh, 1,000, and uh, the people was. Uh, Amazing, uh, received the, our booklet and the New Testament, and uh, four or five, I don't know, I'm not sure, is uh, how they are from come to church. We want to pray for them and for others which not yet uh, give us feedback for uh, our uh, gifts for them. Pray, please pray for this. Just as a reminder of what he was talking about a few years ago, um, we sponsored um, uh, the Saturate program. We did it here locally where we distributed evangelistic materials and copies of the Jesus film to every home in Whitfield County. And our partners in Romania found out about that and they said, we want to do this. Um, the problem was uh, we sponsored, we, we raised money as part of our missions conference before COVID to do this, and so it got delayed by all of the craziness of COVID in Romania, and uh, they were able to finally do that outreach, and what he was telling you was that in partnership with six other churches, seven churches total, they distributed 6,000 um, evangelistic packets with DVDs, and their church, Renastria, which is 
um, you know, 50 to 75 people regularly distributed over 100 packets and had conversations with four or five people that were really meaningful, powerful conversations about people that wanted to know more about Jesus, wanted to come to the church. And so um, that was an outreach project he's updating you on that you all were a part of. And the genesis of it was four and five years ago. But God is continuing to uh, reap the harvest in Romania and continue to pray for Reynastria Church, which is the Romanian word for, for rebirth. Um, and uh, so pray for them, for Mihai and for uh, Donnie, who serves with him um, in ministry at that church. We're going to jump in now to Hebrews chapter 4 and reflect on the beauty of the advocate we have. Um, some of you may or may not know that for... Um, about a decade, my parents lived in Boston, Massachusetts, which created a really cool perk for my family. Because if you've ever had a friend or family member that lives in a cool place, it becomes extra fun to go and visit and vacation. Like if you have a, a friend or family member that lives like in Florida, close to the beach, you like those invitations, right? Because you wanna go see this loved one but it also comes with it the opportunity for a free place to stay in kind of a, a high rent area in a sought after area to go and, and visit. Boston's a cool place, it's, it's one of my favorite cities. I tell people this and they get stressed out. I love, I love Boston. I love the history of Boston. I really like history. I really like the Revolutionary War period. It's such an important period, not just in American history, but in world history. And to, so to see and to reflect on the locations of the Tea Party and the Boston Massacre and Old North, North Church and Paul Revere and all of the, the amazing things that happened there in the history of our country, but also just things that were so important in the history of the world and, and moments in the Great Awakening and the old churches and the, the heritage of the gospel preached in those areas, it's fun. And also, it's just cool to visit a big city that has restaurants and fun things that you don't have in a community like ours. And so it became a normal thing where we just decided, we couldn't go every year, but we decided this is something that we want to make a part of our, of our vacations, is to go see my family. Obviously, seeing your parents is important. Everyone should do that occasionally. But not just to see my family, but to say like, hey, let's take some extra time. Let's go tour the city, let's see the sights. And it's funny because my dad became so proud of this city that, you know, he, he I didn't grow up there by any means. The decade that they lived in, um, in Boston was mostly our first seven or eight years here, as well as a few years before we moved here. So it was like 2008 to 2019 or so that they lived up there. And in that time, we had all of our children. We were able to take our children to Boston. We were able to see the sights and everything. And my dad, it was funny to see him become like the tour guide. Like, this is my city. It's like, it's not. You haven't really lived here very long. People in Boston have lived there for like generations, right? And here's this new guy from the Midwest that, you know, everybody in Boston thinks Cincinnati, where my dad's from, is like a cow town. And so, like, he is this like redneck Midwesterner in the big city but he loved it, he fell in love, and it was funny to see him take on the tour guide mentality and be so proud of it. And it's been really fun over the years since that people come to us 
And they're like, hey, you guys have been to Boston. Like, what do you do? What are the restaurants? And so then we pass it on. We're like, hey, we've been there, you know, not a ton, but enough times to know and navigate the subway. And, and y'all, it's super fun to drive in Boston. Nobody, nobody believes me when I tell them that, but Boston is so much better. This is, what, this is what you will not believe. Driving in Boston is better than driving in Atlanta by a million miles. And if you just do it a little bit in both cities, you will notice what I'm talking about. Because in Boston, everybody drives the same way. And you just gotta do it. In Atlanta, Atlanta's the scary big city because you have the big city drivers and you have all other category of drivers in Atlanta too. So it's scary because you don't know what the other person's gonna do. In Boston, you learn the rhythm, everybody does the same thing, it's a beautiful place. But there's something about a, a city that you have somebody there to host you, to go to. And I hope you've had that experience where it's like you have this family member that lives close to the lake or close to the beach or in the mountains and you're like there's an added perk of going and visiting because you have somebody there to host you have a connection you have a free place to stay and something that would be intimidating and unmanageable becomes practical becomes something that you can embrace and and figure out well the position my parents home changed our approach to where we wanted to vacation, how we wanted to approach other cities, and it caused us to take an interest in a city we didn't have before. But the whole message today is something way bigger than that. But it's something that can sort of connect with us on that point. Because the position of Jesus matters more than any of us really pay attention to every day. And by the position of Jesus, I mean the location of Jesus. You've probably heard the scripture where Jesus, right before he goes and he ascends back into heaven, he tells his people, it is better for you that I go away. It's one of the most surprising and at the surface confusing passages of all of scripture. Because here we have Thousands of years of Israelite history throughout the Old Testament telling us the best thing in the world that could happen is the Messiah coming. And when the Messiah coming, everything changes and all of the foreign powers fall and everything in your worship, in your salvation, in your daily lives is going to change when the Messiah comes. And then the Messiah does a lot, teaches a lot, dies on the cross, raises again, and then comes and says, actually, guys, the best thing for you is for the Messiah to now leave you. And you're like, Isaiah didn't say that was going to happen. Like, that is not what I read about. Why is the Messiah leaving? And Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away because there's somebody else coming. And the essential message of Jesus is, of Jesus' point there is that the spirit inside of you is better than the son beside you. That the son of God, the Messiah, present on earth is still limited in his positional help with various believers. Because what would have happened if Jesus wasn't in the boat during the storm? What would have happened if Jesus wasn't there to heal the sick? 
But Jesus' position became limited by his humanity in his earthly life. And then Jesus said, the right thing for you is for my position, the Son of God's position to change so the Holy Spirit dwells in you and every believer has access to the presence of God in all time. Because the presence of God is no longer Jesus beside you, but the Spirit inside you. And that's a, a really powerful application of what Jesus is saying. But there's another level that is easy to miss. Jesus' application there is not just about the presence of the Spirit, but it's about the location of the Son too. Because where he goes is better for us than where he was. So the whole point of today is figuring out where is Jesus and how Jesus' position, physical position, creates a new position in relationship to our relationship with God and therefore changes everything about how we live. We're taking a long passage. It's Hebrews 14 um, through 5.10, so we're in parts of two chapters, but it all fits together. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read to us all of that. It's about 13 verses. It's not crazy long. But we'll read these 13 verses. I hope you have a copy of the scriptures in front of you. We're not putting these on the screen because we want you to engage in your own copy of the scriptures. Hebrews 4, starting in 14, and we'll read through 5.10. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So there's the 13 verses that we will uh, reflect on this morning in chapters 4 and 10. I'm going to give you the outline of those 13 verses, and then we'll talk about how we'll go through it. Basically, those 13 verses divide into three sections, and it's interesting because this is different than the way we typically approach passages like this. Because the application comes first. 
verses 14 through 16, those three verses at the end of chapter 4, are actually the personal application of the teaching that comes in 1 through 10 of chapter 5. So it starts with application, and then the first five verses of chapter 5 give you the qualities of a human high priest. These are the qualifications. This is the description of the office of a human high priest. And then the next five verses, 6 through 10, show you how Jesus lines up with those qualities. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to change the order a little bit to make it work more like we would normally present a sermon. I'm not changing the Word of God, but I'm rearranging some verses a little bit today. I hope you'll bear with me. Here's the order we're going to take. We're going to take it in more of a logical order the way we think. We're going to look at the teaching first, the qualities of a human high priest in verses 1 through 5, then the qualities of Jesus, and then we'll go back to the end of chapter 4, and we'll close there with the application of this material. So that's our, our pathway for this morning. If you're taking notes, you can write them down. We'll have five qualities for a high priest, and we'll go through them relatively quickly so that we can really get to the end of chapter 4, which, oh, by the way, if you've ever wondered, how do I memorize Scripture? Where do I start? What's a good passage? If you want to, along with our sermon series, memorize some scripture as an individual, as a family, as a couple, this, this passage, 4, 14 through 16, is a great central point of the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews, one of the interesting things is that the book of Hebrews, more than any other book in the Bible, reveals that Jesus, the Son of God, is our high priest. It is the central, the most consistent, the most repeated description of Jesus that comes in the book of Hebrews. So 4, 14 through 16 is like the center of the whole book, and it gives you the most powerful content of the whole book. The most powerful application of the whole book is summed up in that power-packed paragraph 4, 14 through 16. Incidentally, I told you a few weeks ago that I wanted to give you some more information about some background. I've, I've done two videos of Hebrews background. One gives you sort of a framework for the structure of the book, and one gives you information about the author, because it's what everybody's curious about, this anonymous book in the New Testament. What do we know about who wrote it? So there's two, like, 12 to 15-minute videos on our YouTube channel that give you some information about the background of Hebrews. I'll add to that as we go through this book. But let me tell you something. One of the things that is so important about the book of Hebrews is this knowledge that Jesus is the high priest. It's also, if you're interested in those questions about authorship, is one of the key reasons that I don't believe Paul wrote this book. Even though Paul wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else, and lots of these, these issues in Hebrews sound like Paul, Paul, in his other 13 letters of the New Testament, does not put an emphasis on Jesus as the high priest. And so that seems a little inconsistent. The author of Hebrews, his favorite doctrine, his like life point is Jesus is the high priest. And everything in our Christian life flows out of Jesus' position as the high priest. And Paul just doesn't talk about it other places. They're both really important Christian doctrines inspired by God, but I believe God used Paul to emphasize justification Salvation by grace through faith, the righteousness of Christ, those sort of themes. And God used this author, who we don't know who it is, to emphasize the high priestly work of Jesus. 
So that's an aside, and we'll go into Hebrews chapter 5 and see the qualifications of a high priest. First, early in verse 1, it says, every high priest chosen from among men. So that's the first qualification, is that the high priest is a human. The high priest is chosen among men. That is not a radical idea, but it becomes really significant when Jesus is called the high priest. Okay, So as Jesus fits into that human qualification of a high priest, that's where it gets really significant. The high priest works as an advocate between God and man, and so it makes sense that in order for someone to be a good advocate, they need to have solidarity with the person that they are advocating for. And that's what is making a good priest a good priest. Because what happens, and you could look at it in the, in the history of the, uh, the people of God of Israel in the Old Covenant Scriptures, you can see there are some times when there are not great high priests. Why? Because the high priests take their role so seriously. They get big-headed and that they start to see themselves as separate from the people. God didn't choose you people to be priests. God chose our family to be priests. So we are descendants of Levi. We are descendants of Aaron. And therefore, we're the important spiritual leaders of this kingdom. And so every time the priests separated themselves from the people, the spiritual life of Israel tanked. Because the further the separation is, between the person and the advocate, the more difficult the advocacy work is. It, it, you can think of it in the same way in the language of, of an attorney, of somebody that is a legal advocate on behalf of somebody else. If you are in a legal situation and you hire an attorney that you can't even understand and doesn't understand you and you can't talk to, you know that person isn't going to be a good advocate for you. This is not who I want mediating my legal case because I can't connect with this person. I don't understand this person. We want advocates that we can connect with. And so the important quality of the high priest is that, number one, he is a human. He is chosen from among the race of men. He is a descendant of Levi. He's a descendant of Aaron, the high priests are. And therefore, that is where um, where the first qualification comes. But then further in verse 1, we see the next qualification of the representative work of the priest, that he's not just a human, but he is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And so he represents men before God. That's what the sacrifices are all about. The next step is like that. Further in verse 1, what he does on behalf of men in relation to God is he offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the high priest was not set apart so he could wear fancy clothes and have stones in his vest and all those things. Like, if you know some of the Old Testament scriptures, like, it's really interesting to be in a setting where um, so many of us have, by God's grace, grown up in the church. And, and if you haven't, then you probably look at this high priestly stuff, and you're like, I have no idea. I have no reference point for that. But if you grew up going to VBSs and going to Sunday school, then you have some sort of image. You probably saw a picture, maybe a flannel graph or something, of the high priest with this like golden chest plate with all these little stones, and you were 
taught about what all these things represent. And you saw a diorama of like the, the tabernacle and all this stuff in the tabernacle. And you have the, the holy of holies. And then you have the holy place. And you have all of these different things in the, in the old covenant scriptures. You can read through Leviticus. You can read through Deuteronomy. You can go back to Exodus in the wilderness times. And you can see how God ordained this office. And let me be clear about the representative mediatorial work of the high priest. They didn't come up with stuff. That was so important to the function of the high priest. The high priests were not creative. They were not innovative. They were not, at least they were not called to be. Some were negatively creative and innovative. But the way that God called the high priest is, you do what I say. You follow my law. You offer sacrifices the way I want you to. That was the human requirement, or the divine requirement, of the humans who served as the high priests. So if you go back and you read some, and you do some homework in the book of Leviticus, like read, read 8 through 10 of Leviticus, read chapter 16 of Leviticus, those four chapters, 8 through 10 and 16, give you some awareness of how the high priest functions. And you can read in the Day of Atonement in 16, that what the, what the advocate, the mediator, the representative high priest does is first, he's got to take care of his own sins before he offers sacrifice on behalf of the others. And so this is so important to the human high priest, that he is a human, that he is representative, that he is a mediator. Why? Verse 2 gives us the second, or the fourth qualification in verse 2. So that he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he is himself beset with weakness. One of the essential qualifications of the human advocate, mediator, high priest is that he has his own sins to worry about. And his own sins give him sympathy. His own sins give him a connection. Because he doesn't have it all figured out. He's not perfect. And therefore, he is constantly weighed down by the fact of like, I am going to advocate on behalf of the people, but I have sinned myself. In word and deed, I am a sinner that is guilty before God. And it was a check and balance for pride and, and for the, the, the um, enamor of power within the priestly office. Those that were tempted to think too highly of themselves, God was constantly reminding them, in the system, you're a sinner too. Don't you dare go and offer sacrifices on behalf of others when you haven't purified your own self, when you haven't gone to God on behalf of your own sin. Now, that was a check and balance that many ignored and became the haughty, dangerous, um, wayward high priest that, that turned the people astray or went astray themselves. But the beauty in God's system is the sympathy of a weak, vulnerable human who is going as an advocate and mediator on behalf of other weak, vulnerable humans. When you have a difficult task in front of you, and let's say, let's put it in the Christian life. Let's say you've made a ton of mistakes. Let's say you have, you have lived a sinful lifestyle. And you have somebody who is trying to call you to a Christian life of discipleship and obedience. But what if that person has come out of the same sinful lifestyle you've come out of? The same addiction, 
the same wickedness, the same broken family that wasn't your fault but was the fault of those around you, there is a special connection there when somebody says, yeah, my parents were abusive too. And look what God did. He rescued me out of that. Or somebody said, I, I was addicted to alcohol. I was addicted to pornography. I was, I, I, I was greedy and I cheated and I, I manipulated my business to make wealth for myself. I was addicted to materialism. And when somebody has been there and come out of that depth of that sin or that brokenness, it just feels like a deeper connection. And so there's a beauty. There's a beauty. We so much, we so emphasize the brokenness of the way sinful human people broke the old covenant system and laws repeatedly. And, and honestly, that's what God always knew they were going to do. And part of the design was so that they would prove they wouldn't be able to follow the law and they needed a savior in Jesus. But there's a connection point of sympathy when you have somebody who isn't all high and mighty, doesn't have everything figured out, but can connect with your brokenness and connect with your vulnerability. The last trait of the human high priest is to be called by God. That we find in verse five, or sorry, in verse four. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So in other words, nobody actually was supposed to campaign as the high priest. No one could just declare themselves as the high priest. No one walked into the meeting of the other priests and Levites and said, guys, I'm taking over. As of this day, I'm going to start serving as the high priest. No, God in Exodus 28 said, Aaron, you're the guy. You're the man. You're the high priest. It's not Moses. Moses is leading the people. But Aaron, you're the high priest. You're the mediator. You're the advocate. Exodus 28, number 16. Tell us that story. But here's the interesting thing about this audience, okay? The, the author of Hebrews is writing from an extensive Jewish background. He knows the Old Covenant. He knows Leviticus well in order to say the things he's saying. And what he's do, who he's writing to are people that know the Old Covenant well as, as well. They know all the system and the sacrifices. They know all about high priests. This is a really vibrant picture to them. In their mind, as, G, as the author of Hebrews is connecting Jesus to the high priest, they're thinking of the high priest that's operating in Jerusalem at the time. They have a, a face to go with the office. And they have probably multiple faces of those that served throughout their lifetime. Or they have ideas in their head of those that have served throughout Israelite history. It's a very important office to them that just connects with them in a deeper way than us. But the other thing they have in their house, in their mind, is the way the, the priestly office had gotten so messed up over the years. There was once this house of priests called the Hasmoneans that were appointed um, by not God, but by Herod the Great. And then you have these 33 years from 37 BC to 4 BC that you have not God appointing the high priest, but the human ruler who was not a Jew, who was under the authority of Rome, appointing the high priest. So they are, in a sense, false high priests. They had no right to do that. The king doesn't appoint high priests. The emperor doesn't appoint high priests. God appoints high priests. But then Archelaus, 
after Herod the Great appointed high priest, the next ruler, Archelaus, did the same thing. And then every Roman governor throughout 6 AD to AD 41, a succession of Roman governors, they said it was their role. And so think about this. For the previous century, the previous 100 years before this book was written, they had a whole line of high priestly faces in their mind, people that they had seen at the temple as they went to celebrate the festivals. And every single one of those was not appointed by God, but appointed by Herod or the, whatever ruler came after that. So here's the connection point for this original audience. I've told you several times, the temptation, the occasion of the book, is these are people that are tempted. Is Jesus worth it, or do I need to go back to the system I grew up in, the system I'm comfortable with, in the Old Covenant system and Judaism? And what the author of Hebrews is here doing is like, that system's broken beyond repair because that system is not operating the way the covenant said for it to operate anyway. So he's reminding them, this person is supposed to be called by God, and you well know for a hundred years, you have proof this person has not been called by God. And over the previous couple thousand, you have, a couple, you have some reasons to think through uh, hundreds of these high priests that have served throughout Israelite history were not actually appointed by God. The first few were, but then... People got greedy. People broke the system. People manipulated the system. That's an important aspect here because here's what he does in these first five verses or the first four verses. He gives you the system. This is who, who the human high priest is. And then he's got to prove to the people Jesus fits this. But as he proves that Jesus fits it, he's also proving Jesus is the only one that fits it. That's the other burden the author has here. So that's verses 1 through 4. Now we'll go into verses 5 through 10. And it's the same five qualifications. He proves all of them. But what he does is he actually starts where he finished. Where he finished in verse 4 on human high priests, that's where he starts in verse 5 relating to Jesus. And I'm sorry, that's wrong. This, is, these, this section goes from verse 5 to 10, not verse 6 to 10. So look at verse 5. That's where we really need to point up, pick up. So Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So verse 4 says, a high priest can only be called by God. Verse 5 said, Jesus is the only high priest that's actually been called by God in the last many generations. And so he starts with the fifth qualification. That's the first one he goes over in proving Jesus because it's the most important one, right? It's the one that the human high priests have most clearly violated and in which Jesus is the most unique. The perfect son of God became a man. He learned obedience, the passage says, which is a weird language for us to, to embrace. But the point is, Jesus was always God and was always the perfect son. He was not always the perfect savior. He had to first become a human and obey God and suffer and be tempted and die and rise and he became the perfect savior. He wasn't always the perfect savior because he hadn't yet actually obeyed and suffered and been tempted. But when he put on flesh, he became the son of God that was called to become the perfect savior. But it's not just point five that he was called. He goes through the other four the first qualification we saw was that he was human. Look at verse 7. 
in the days of his flesh. Jesus was human. In the days of his flesh. The author of Hebrews uses that term for human flesh intentionally to say, while Jesus was a human, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So in verse 7, we see that Jesus was human and he experienced weakness and suffering as a human. He, he experienced the limitations of human flesh and the pain of human flesh. But as he was a human, he was also a representative. And he was praying in the garden. And what was he praying in those prayers and supplications? Do you remember the scene? Jesus was praying and he prayed, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. This Hebrews 5-7 is a challenging verse. Maybe you see it, maybe you don't see it. God denied Jesus' prayer in the garden. Jesus' prayer in the garden, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but, but yours, be done. And then Hebrews 5-7 tells us his prayer was heard. But God didn't grant Jesus the request that he offered as the Son of God who was in weakness, suffering, and, and crying, and in so much pain and torment of soul as he was preparing for the cross. And yet Hebrews says, God listened, God heard him, God answered, because that wasn't Jesus' only prayer. The beauty of the garden is that Jesus did pray for himself, and God did not grant the prayer that Jesus prayed for himself. And the prayer that God did grant was to make his people one, as you and I are one. God answered the prayer to keep the people that God had given to Jesus. So as Jesus prayed for himself and his own well-being, he knew the Father would not answer. He knew the Father would not grant that request. But the prayer that the Father answered was the prayer for you, the prayer for me, the prayer for our preservation, the prayer for our good, the prayer for our spiritual well-being. That was the prayer that was answered. So out of his human frailty, out of the, the weakness of his, fresh, of his flesh, he prayed, but his role as a representative was granted. The cup of suffering did not pass from him, but was poured out on him. But the oneness of his, of his people, of his brothers and sisters, was accomplished through the cup of suffering being poured out. He knew that full well, and he went willingly so that as a representative, he could become, in verse 9, the source. That's where we see the mediatorial work, this third qualification of a, um, of a high priest. Verse 9 says, he became, through all of this suffering and obedience, he became perfect, and he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at several um, words that describe these similar things. We looked at how Jesus is the founder of our salvation, and A.J. presented to us. A.J. got us thinking about different founders of different movements and institutions and those that, that invented and created different things so that we could understand the role of a founder. And then I came back and I said, there's, there's a fuller sense of the picture too. The founder is, is an important image. There's another um, word picture in there of a pioneer, 
and, and I use the illustration of Lewis and Clark, none of us could have ever been west to see the beauty of the American West without first somebody going and pioneering and blazing a trail. You can't join a movement without a founder. You can't walk a path without a trailblazer. And you can't receive salvation without the source. All three of these people, all three of these pictures, refer to the same person and the same thing. We are part of a movement that had a founder whose name is Jesus. We follow a path of the trailblazer, Jesus. And we drink from the well where Jesus is the source of the water and the source of life. So his mediatorial work isn't just connecting, but actually himself being the river that flows of life from God to the dead and decaying that need new life and salvation. But you know, out of all these five qualifications of the human high priest that Jesus connects with and represents, there is one that I am convinced is the favorite of the author of Hebrews. And it is this fourth one, the last one in this section, that he is sympathetic. In 5.7, we see that as he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death, he was heard because of his reverence. So Jesus cried tears. Jesus cried in anguish. Jesus physically and spiritually suffered in the cross and crucifixion. And so he is able to, in accordance with going back to where we started, 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now what's crazy is that one of the key qualifications, I told you, the key qualification for sympathy for the human high priest was that the human high priests were sinners themselves. And therefore, they sympathized with the weakness of the people because they were sinners themselves. But the author of Hebrews changes the game on us. And he says, actually, what's even better is if you have someone who is not a sinner, who has overcome every sin and temptation, suffered under sin and temptation, suffered under the physical pain of, of human flesh, suffered under the spiritual pain of suffering for sins, suffered under the mental and emotional strain of temptation and really desiring to to disobey and sin because of the temptation coming from the devil himself, the great adversary himself. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. And the author of Hebrews says, you think, you think it sounds good to have somebody who's just as broken as you are, who's just as messed up as you are, and that person be your mentor. You think that what you need in order to get out of your alcoholism is somebody that has been an alcoholic and, and, and committed the same sin and the same wickedness that you have, and that person's going to lead you through. And the author of Hebrews says, let me tell you one better. Let me tell you one that, about one that had the temptation, whose flesh cried out and never fell into it because he was the perfect son of God. He was God himself, who willingly put on human flesh, put on the limitation and the pain, and he knew what it was going to be like, and he did it anyway so that he could pull you out. 
He has the strength to pull you out. It's beautiful when you have a mentor that has fallen and sinned just like you have. But the only reason that human mentor is able to pull you out of a sin that is, that is like yours or like theirs is because that person has committed to a perfect, sympathetic Savior who has been tempted, who has struggled, and has been victorious and has actually lived a life without sin. The beautiful application of the entire book of Hebrews is there in 4.15. It is the central message of this book. The central application of the high priestly ministry of Jesus, the central application in the author of Hebrews of all the work of Jesus is look at all he has accomplished as high priest and therefore you have a personal connection to a sympathetic high priest who gets you better than the human high priest did. Who is, who is not limited by human flesh and mired in sin themselves, but actually has a better sympathy because he knows not just what you're suffering, he knows the beauty and the perfection you were created for in the image of the perfect father. See, that's the limitation of human advisors sometimes, is sometimes our vision is too small because we don't see all the beauty of the spiritual realm and all the beauty of eternity that the perfect son of God can see when he knows the beauty of the Father and how, how expansive that is and knows that you are created in the image of one who is far greater, far more beautiful, far more gracious, and far more just than you imagine right now. And therefore, your righteousness exceeds the beauty that you can conceive of. And therefore, your ability to live righteously is actually stronger than you think it is. You're resolving your self-control because of the Spirit of God that indwells you and because of the position that Jesus is now in. Your self-control is greater because it's not self-control. It is Spirit-empowered. And so it's not just that you're more wicked than you actually think you are and God is more gracious than you actually think you are, but you have a higher capacity for obedience and righteousness than you think you do too. You have, a higher, you have a higher capacity to change the world around you. You have a higher capacity to speak the truth of the gospel in a way that the people that you love, that you are so desperate to see turn, could actually receive, not because of your eloquence or your wisdom or your training or your education, but because of the power of God. Christ sees that in you, and he dwells in you to give you the power that people may actually change through the words you're nervous about speaking. And people may actually change through your service and your love when you think it's just a drop in a bucket. If I give that guy a meal, if I give that guy some clothing, some clothing if, I, if I help them in this small way, it's a drop in the bucket. And Jesus, your Savior, your high priest, who is sitting next to God the Father right now, knows that your actions speak way louder and ripple far more throughout all eternity than you might conceive. That's why that sympathetic high priest is better. He sees more. He understands more. He's been there. He's experienced the pain that you have experienced. And he loves you through your pain. And he pulls you out of it. And so what is our application? It's pretty simple. It's two points in verse 14 and 16. Number one, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession what the original audience would have seen in hearing that the high priest passed through the heavens, they would have seen the word picture that the author of Hebrews is giving us. When the high priest 
entered the human high priest in the old covenant, entered into the presence of God. He went through a process to get there. First, the high priest bore the blood of the covenant sacrifice through the outer court of the tabernacle and then the temple. And then he entered into the holy place. First the outer court and then the holy place. And then finally, he entered through the thick veil into the holiest of holies. Only the high priest, only at the appointed time could anyone, any human being, enter into that presence. It's a beautiful depiction of the sacredness of the presence of God, of the mercy of God, and the justice of God, that you cannot take the presence of God lightly. And here's the picture. When Jesus is, pa is passing through the heavens, meaning 40 days after the resurrection, he ascends into heaven, and they see him go through the clouds, and he enters into the presence of the Father. He is passing through the heavens in the same way the human high priest passed outer court, holy place, in the most holy place. So where is Jesus now? He's right next to the Father, and that makes all the difference. Everything that the, high, that the high priestly office of Jesus is accomplishing for us, everything that the author of Hebrews is riffing on for 13 chapters, everything he wants you to know is dependent on where Jesus is right now. And it's better, not just because we have the Spirit with us, that he's not here, because our advocate is sitting right next to the only one whose opinion matters. The only one who has sovereign control over all creation the only one who can actually see you and see who you are, God the Father. And in all of our self-actualization talk of trying to be who we are and trying to be our true selves and trying to find our way to our heart and follow our heart into who we really are, only God knows who you really are. And your attempt is not to derive some, some self-identifying principle of your identity but your goal is to discern who has God created you to be in his image, and therefore, who is he? Who are you as a sinner? And who are you in light of him? That is the journey of identity formation. Not developing your identity, discerning an identity that comes from outside of you that is eternal and far more powerful than you could imagine. So what do we do in light of all this beauty? We hold fast, stand firm, Hold our position. Be unwavered. Be unmoving. And there's new challenges to that command in every single generation. Because every generation brings a new challenge to our confession. What is our confession? It's our doctrine. It's our belief. The simplest form of our confession is Jesus Christ died to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, and he rose again for my new life in him. When Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for me, that is the confession that has given me new life, and that is what I hold fast to. But the confessions that come out of that are all sorts of things about what it means to follow this God, about what the Christian life is all about. And there's so much beauty to what we have once received, and probably everyone in this room is here in this room, no matter where your heart with God is now, no matter where your sort of spiritual energy is now, you've probably felt it once before. You're probably here because at some point there was a youth camp or there was a, a kids ministry thing or there was an adult conversion where you felt that warmth, where you felt that power and now you've been living your whole life ebbing and flowing in that strength and power. 
and you want to get it back, and you know you need it back. And the author of Hebrews says, Jesus, your Savior, your Advocate, your Mediator, is next to God the Father, which proves your position hasn't changed. You were just as much with Christ as when you felt that love and that passion that, that one time. If you truly believe the gospel and committed to follow Jesus, even though your life has gone horribly since then, and even though you've messed up since then, and others have sinned against you, you're still in the same place. Hold fast. Remember that first love. And keep, keep holding on. Notice he doesn't say, in this part, he doesn't say, press forward and attack the world. Fight back for the cause of Christ. Because sometimes, all we can do as Christians is just hold on. You just hold on. And our holding on is this radical act of obedience and discipleship and faith in Jesus that he is holding on to us. And we do not need to fear this world. We do not need to leave, live defeated because we're a minority. We hold fast because the power of God is in us and is for us. But there is a movement that he calls to here. You don't just hold fast, you draw near. And you draw near with a bold confidence, knowing that you need not fear those that are against you or a world that is against you, but rather, because of where he is, you get to go there too. That's, that's where we draw near to. We draw near to the presence of God. The reason the veil was torn is because that whole process of going outer court to holy place to the holiest of holy place in the temple or in the tabernacle, that whole process is null and void because Jesus is there in the most holy place in the presence of God and he has called you to go there with him. And he has positionally transferred you. Here's, here's the other crazy thing. When I say the most important thing about you is where Jesus is now, it's because where Jesus is, when you are united with him, therefore you are there too. The book of Ephesians, Paul makes it a past tense situation that you are now seated with Christ in the heavenly places because Jesus, Jesus is there in the presence of God. Positionally, your salvation, your, your life in eternity is already established and achieved you are present with Jesus in the throne room of God. And so don't be afraid when you pray, am I going to get the words right? Don't be afraid when you come to church, if you're going to be raising your hands or not, do I let myself go? Do I worry about what people think about me when I'm raising my hands and my eyes are closed and praying? Just draw near with boldness, with confidence. Because you are already positionally, if you have believed in Jesus and you have accepted Jesus, you're positionally ushered in to the throne room of God. That place where Isaiah fell down and couldn't even look, you're there. You have access. You have bold access. No matter what goes wrong, no matter what happens, you can draw near with confidence. So as the team comes, and we'll sing one more song and we'll rest in what our advocate has done for us. We'll rejoice in the new position that he has and how it affects our position and the new standing we have. I ask you, if you are in Christ right now, 
draw near. That means coming to the altar and praying in bold confidence for God to move in the brokenness of your life. Draw near. That means standing and raising your hands with reckless abandon and singing of the truth of the gospel. Draw near. It means going to somebody in the room and saying, I'm broken, I need support, would you pray with me? Draw near. It means going to your knees in the presence of God. Draw near. And if you don't know if you can draw near because you don't know where you are with Jesus, then I pray that you would come and come to me and come to someone you trust and say, I need to make sure that I can draw near and that Jesus' positional standing as high priest actually is as my advocate and as my salvation. Let's worship together.